This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Talking about vaccine passports for travel and uh, what that's going to look like. I don't think there's any doubt that we're going to see uh, that become a pretty commonplace thing. And a number of you text me saying, hey, I mean, this isn't really new. Uh, this listener says you need a yellow fever vaccine card in your passport to travel to many countries. And it's been that way for years. Yes, absolutely. You need proof of vaccination to travel to a lot of different places for a lot of different things. But I think the difference here is it's going to be far more widespread. It's going to be far more commonplace. Um, and it'll probably apply to most countries, if not all countries. The EU saying that you can travel there this summer if you have proof of vaccination. So uh, vaccine passports is what we're talking about here. And joining us to share some thoughts on this is Benjamin Muller, who is a professor of political science and sociology at Western University, joining us to talk a bit about this situation. Uh, professor, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, when we take to take a look at this, uh, I think for a lot of people it's concerning. It's it's troubling. There are some issues around it that they they want answers on. Um, it's interesting in the piece you recently wrote, you draw some comparisons to what we did following nine eleven and the way we changed travel and security and what we have to do in order to get on an airplane, and just how some of that went too far. And you're saying we could see some parallels with vaccine passports, right? Yeah, I think uh, there, there's a variety of ways that the comparison makes sense. I mean, one is which that you know all of us are eager to travel again, and I think there's a lot of similarities after 9-11. People wanted to kind of return yeah. to quote-unquote normal. And in doing so, I think we were willing to overlook or not participate as actively um, as publics in the application and use of these new technologies that then have had kind of a broad array of ramifications, many of which, you know, we didn't foresee and and in some cases aren't happy with. And I think there's a lot of parallels to what we see happening now. And that is a risk with this kind of technology, right? I mean, once you open the door and get it started, you the limits can't be that clearly defined. And, and like you say, it can end up, you know, into an area of overreach. Like it just continues to grow and affect things more than we'd expected it would. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, it's it's common at the time after 9-11, you know, when I was researching biometrics, many folks said, whatever, I've provided fingerprints for mm-hmm. documentation. How is this different? Same kind of analogy now with things to do with documents that um, we keep in our passport, a piece of paper that shows we've been inoculated for something. But that's distinctly different than digital information. It's quite likely that what we're going to see is some sort of app on our mobile phones that's going to contain this information. And the ability to transfer and share our personal data is very different under those circumstances than when we're holding a piece of paper. Yeah, so what are the concerns around that? Because you're right, it will be technology-based, and I think, you know, smartphone is typically how we do most things these days. So so what are your concerns around, you know, the difference between that and just having a piece of paper that you produce? Why is that more of a concern? Yeah, I, I think one of them, you know, relates uh, to, to my co-author, Dr. Cook, a lot of his work looking at in terms of the development of the apps themselves. Uh, there is uh, concerns around that and, and gets a little technical things called APIs, which are application programming interfaces. Basically, what when someone wants to develop an app, they kind of go to this toolbox that's effectively created by Google and Apple for people to develop them. 
And, and these things are basically not neutral. They're designed to kind of continually try and grab more data and more information as the app functions. And so, I mean, that's one side. The other side is, I think, things we're already aware of. So, you know, I was reminded of a story from uh, almost 10 years ago now where a woman tried to leave Toronto Airport to the United States to get on a cruise, and she was denied entry on the basis of being uh, admitted to a mental facility a year prior. And, you know, this, you know, we ask, how did this happen? Well, it happened because we have data sharing agreements with other countries and the extent to which those exist, how much of our personal data is shared with other nations is often not known to us. And we will need those kinds of agreements, both in terms of private and public when these apps are going to operate. And so I think that's a, a serious kind of whole bundle of questions about where the information's going and how it's being gathered. Yeah, and those privacy concerns are overarching. And I think you're right. You know, are, are we assuming that governments will be the ones handling this? It won't be a private firm that's going to come up with these passports. It'll have to be something government-based. Does that make any difference? Well, I, I think to some extent, we, we should probably all recognize that that's simply not going to be the case, that the government may back something and say, yeah. this is the platform we're going to use, but that is going to be developed privately. That's going to be developed either by uh, a large tech corporation or actually more likely by a series of individuals who are kind of working collabor- collaboratively through things like GitHub and so on to develop the apps that will use this. That's the sort of story we saw with the uh, with the contact tracing apps, and so I think we'll see something similar here. And when we talk about, I mean, just the obvious barrier, not everybody has a smartphone, Benjamin. I mean, there are people that don't. We just got a text from a listener saying, I can't afford the data on a smartphone. I mean, so are we sort of setting up, I don't want to say a two-tier system, but you know what I mean? We're sort of discriminating against some people. We're making it harder for some people and easier for others. There's, We're not all on an equal playing field here. Yeah, I think, again, that's uh, where there's a telling comparison to what happened after 9-11. The rollout of these technologies um, in terms of biometrics and other forms of surveillance and identification technologies, they weren't um, uniformly applied, nor were they uniformly accessible to all people. And so, you know, you want to pass into the United States um, more readily and quickly along the border, well, you enroll in something like Nexus. Mm -hmm. But there's costs involved, there's technology, there's time commitments, and you're exposing more of your personal privacy. So I think the story is the same here. Uh, And a story we've seen during COVID quite a bit, that it seems to amplify uh, inequities more than anything else. I think it's inevitable we're going to get there. We're going to have these things. It's going to be a, a qualifier for traveling for a lot of people. What's what's a better way of doing it? Is there a way that will, you know, make it check all of the boxes and still not have some of these issues you're concerned about? Yeah, I, I think, like, I would agree with you. There's an extent to which this is a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Um, we want to travel. We know there's going to be a requirement for some kind of tool. I think my concern, and again, the 9-11 and, and post-9-11 example is in my mind here that it happens so quickly, the public is not involved in the conversation and the amount of oversight, um, even from institutions um, like our, our, our privacy institutions that exist um, in Canada at the provincial and federal level, uh, tend not to be as involved in this as we'd like to see because of the quest to get it faster so that we can all just get on our way. Yeah, we'll, we'll give up a little uh, of 
you know, our privacy and our security and things like that in, in the name of convenience. And we could be hurtling right towards that again. Yeah, I think that's the thing that that unfortunately, I would say false trade off often yeah. gets presented to us rather than thinking that this could, in fact, be something that enhances privacy. Um, there's no reason why that can't be the case, but it's often not the case. Yeah, exactly. Interesting discussion. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Benjamin. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.